When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 100, an interview with Mike Duncan. Yes, it was only appropriate that I pay tribute to the man who inspired the history of Byzantium in our 100th episode. I'll talk a little bit more after the interview, but for now, here is our Romulus and Constantine all rolled into one. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hello. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm sure I speak for all uh, the audience when I say you've brought Roman history to life for us and inspired an interest in where the story went next into the Byzantine era. Yeah, I'm really glad you kept it going. You, you picked <laughs> up the standard where I just like very gently set it down and walked away from it. Well, you know, I, I let others judge. I, uh, my, my, my feeling at the start was I'll, I'll at least try to match for quantity, if not if not quality, but uh, we'll see about that. Um, so given that the listeners are, are such big fans of your work, I thought I'd ask some behind-the-scenes questions today and uh, try and get some insights into how you made the history of Rome and, and now revolutions. Um, so let's start with the most basic thing about the show, your voice. Um, I would say you adopted a, a neutral measured tone where which i think communicated the sense that you were a, an objective observer as much as one can be rather than someone championing the romans as the the greatest civilization or anything particular like that did you give much thought to the tone of voice you were going to use when you first sat down to write and record i can't imagine that i did um you know the the early podcasts were i was just I didn't really know a ton of what I was doing. I was just kind of making it up as I go along. And I don't think I re I, I know I wanted it to be kind of sedate and a little bit serious. Um, you know, I listened to the very early stuff, the, the first, you know, 10, 15 episodes and even more. And I'm like, wow, that is like really sedate. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you know, you are allowed to use inflection if you want to. Um, so I, I think I was just like reading the scripts and, um, you know, obviously, as I've said before, like I'd listened to uh, 12 Byzantine rulers and a couple of other podcasts. So I think maybe I was modeling it a little bit off of that. But I knew for sure going into it that I didn't want the show to be a lot of um, like flashbang stuff. I, I didn't have any like sound effects. I wasn't trying to make it, um, you know, have a bunch of crazy sound effects in the background or make it 
wild and crazy. I wanted it to be just kind of like intro music, me delivering the story and then getting out. So I'm, I'm, it was probably just a natural, you know, outgrowth of that um, approach mm-hmm. to the story. Yeah. Well, one of the things, uh, I think you did best and, uh, I hadn't heard it on other podcasts was to constantly remind the audience of where we are. Here's where we've been. Here's where we're going. Uh, not only at the start and end of each episode, but also the broad sweep. So, you know, here's Commodus, next comes the crisis, and then Diocletian. Did that structure, again, come naturally to you, or did over time you start to think, I need to... I need to remind people of this or else they're going to get lost. I, I think th- I think I had that from the very beginning. I always wanted uh, people to know where we were going and where we had been along the way, um, especially because when you're reading a book, for example, you can always like if you're at some place in the story, you're like, oh, wait, who was this guy again? You can always just sort of flip back and catch yeah. up with yourself in an audio podcast you know, you can't do that as a listener. And so anytime I sort of instinctively felt that even I was like, okay, where are we in the story again? I would just include those little blurbs to keep everybody going. And then, you know, the, this is what we did last time. And this is what we're going to do this week. You know, some of that is just from a writing standpoint, uh, helping me get in the mindset to like, you know, I'm, I'm almost doing it for myself out loud to keep it going. So a lot of those, you know, foreshadowings and look back were instinctively, if I was listening to it or if I was a reader, when do I want to know or be reminded of where we've been and where we're going? And then I would just write it on in and it always seemed to, it always seemed to work. See, now that you say that, I can see someone thinking uh, they're going to create like an index for each podcast and that there'll be some kind of business where that, you know, you can click on the on Diocletian, and it'll tell you which episode, which minutes, you know, where you reference this. You know, that. after I finish the show, I've never, I've never done anything with this. I, I think I made it through the first third of the episodes because I took a year off the show, um, or just a year off of podcasting. There is actually an Excel document that I have that, at least for the first third of the episodes, every place name and person name that I mentioned, uh, I say what episodes they appeared in. Uh, and hopefully at some point I'll turn that into a little something for the listeners, but I'm quite busy. So that's, um, (laughs) that, that project has been set aside. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of the sense of humor you brought, uh, to the history of Rome. Uh, my personal favorite was, uh, having Diocletian say, look at me, Maximian, when telling him it was time to resign. Uh, were you ever worried about how, how jokes would come across and did you kind of work hard to fit them in or did they just flow as you were writing? No, the, the jokes come natural. Um, I, I have never once, and I don't actually recommend that people do this. Um, when I get asked <laughs> is don't, don't try to put jokes in, right? Like write yeah. the material straight, write the history straight. And if you get to something that just kind of like flops out on the page, Go with it, um, but don't ever try to force it in there. Don't sh- don't shoehorn in jokes because they, it it it'll be very noticeable uh, when you do it. So when those jokes do show up, you know, <laughs> Maximian, look at me, look at me. Yeah, <laughs> come on now, we're, we're walking away from this. Um, that's just that's the way I'm picturing it in my head. That's that's the, sort of the um, the scene I'm picturing in my head. So I'm describing it. Um, 
and that's just like if if anybody anybody out there who knows me in real life knows that uh I'm constantly cracking jokes about just about everything in my life. Um, so it, it all just sort of, sort of comes naturally. And, and I've also, for the record, written or um, deleted a ton of jokes. I probably delete, yeah. you know, 80% of the things that I wrote in the rough draft. Um, I'll be going through it and it's like, no, nah, I'm not going to say that. No, nah, I'm not going to say that. No, nah, I'm not going <laughs> to. Um, because a lot of them are horrible. <laughs> uh, they're really well, cheesy you, and lame. And I mean, even <laughs> even the stuff that is in there, some of it is cheesy and lame, but I like it. Yeah. So I kept it. Well, it's, it's sometimes it's so hard to know how a, a joke's going to come across that like you think as you write it. Uh, well, this this makes perfect sense. And I imagine as you read it back, you think, oh, no, wait. I'm going to have to explain this to make that work. And then you think, right, that's it. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, if it's not going to f- really flow naturally. And then obviously my sense of humor is, is like very dry. I have this very dry <laughs> uh, sense of humor. So occasionally I will say things that are jokes that I'm obviously saying with a straight face because I think straight faced dry humor is like the, the best of the best. Um, <laughs> there's definitely times when people do not get the jokes. <laughs> And so they're like, they're like, why did you say this? Uh, you know, because because I was joking. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to tip my cap about. I'm not. I'm not going to tip my hand here. I'm no. going to tell you it's a joke. Otherwise, that's going to wreck it. Uh, I like I like the sound of the emails flooding in, asking you. You know, what's all this about? <laughs> you know, uh, Spartacus being uh, born in. In New York or, or right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I forgot I did that. <laughs> um, I I did ask uh, listeners on Facebook uh, if they had any questions for you, and and one that came up, which I know comes up every time you get interviewed, is about oh, you know, who are the best emperors? And I thought, well, that's that's a dull question, and you did cover it on the show. But I thought I'd indulge my own. Uh, specific question. I, I've been re-listening to parts of the history of Rome, and um, I wondered where you felt Constantine sort of sat when, when you were judging it on the criteria of of whether they were good for the empire as opposed to whether they were, you know, a, a transformative figure. Um, because I was interested, you, you kind of listed quite a lot of caveats that surround his career. You know, the the murdering and the warmongering, and then also things like the inflation and, and sort of the moves towards serfdom. Um, and it, it definitely struck me listening to it that, you know, before him, people were, were sharing the throne and after him, they went back to sort of sharing control of the empire. Only he demanded everyone be kind of cut down before him. So I, looking back, wh- where do you sort of land on, on Constantine? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really ambivalent about Constantine. Obviously he's a transformative figure, in the history of the Mediterranean world. Um, and there are things that he did that are, I mean, like the guy founded Constantinople. That's not a small insignificant or even bad thing. Um, no. you know, moving, moving the seat of Imperial power to Byzantium. Uh, you know, that's a great city. Um, but yeah, his, you know, his rise to power, his treatment of his own family, his treatment of the citizens of, uh, of the empire generally, None of it's super great. Um, and then also he, of course, having gone through the history of Rome in its entirety and now with the revolution stuff, I'm 
I'm a really big advocate for, you know, setting up the succession uh, before you die to make sure that there's some kind of political stability after you're gone. And Constantine appears to have taken, you know, like zero steps to ensure that uh, his kids wouldn't just fall into like, you know, civil wars with each other. So that's not so great. And then also, um, you know, the transition of Christianity from what Constantine's obviously the guy who is going to make Christianity or attempt to make Christianity the world religion. Um, but before Christ, before Constantine comes along in the council of Nicaea, you know, Christianity is this, um, sort of ground up, uh, from the bottom up, I mean, movement of, um, you know, slaves and women and, um, you know, privates in the army, sort of like the lowest of the low, uh, who are embracing this new kind of uh, approach to religion and philosophy, which is early Christianity, that I think is really quite tied to probably what Jesus as a person was advocating. And then once Constantine comes along and the Council of Nicaea comes along, he marries that religious structure to imperial power, and that really transforms Christianity from just a, a sort of a grassroots religious movement into uh, a full-blown power, power structure. Um, so he, he transformed Christianity, and I don't think he transformed it in a great way. I don't think that um, you know, the, the power structure apparatus of Christianity is really the best parts of modern Christianity. I think the best parts of modern Christianity are all the things that were in the milieu before Constantine came along. So I think he added a really a kind, of a, kind of a negative aspect to what um, modern Christianity wound up becoming. Yeah. That gave me a lot of angry emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I stand, I stand shoulder to shoulder with you in the sense that um, when you, when you get into the Byzantine era, you know, you, you can see that the kind of traditional politics of imperial government has moved into, you know, the bishop's house and, you know, that people will do incredibly crass, unchristian things, you know, and as long as they're successful, they get away with it and everyone carries on. So I, I know I know what you're saying about that. Um, it, that is the problem with Constantine, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, if he hadn't if he hadn't created Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire probably would have disappeared. You know, that's definitely been my uh, my experience of the story. And so it's hard to put him down a list of emperors when he his impact is so massive um but yeah he's uh not the most pleasant yeah i mean yeah you, i mean you have to you have to put him front and center as one of the major figures not just in like the roman empire the byzantine empire but just like world history period yeah. um but yeah when it comes to like you know what, what is he is he great like meh. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's other people i'd much rather talk about than constantine yes Yes, I mean, it, definitely the history of Rome's uh, influenced my thinking about, as you say, about people setting up the succession. It, it definitely makes you look at, at Hadrian sort of more kindly with the, the efforts he went to to, to pick someone who'd be, uh, who'd be a good successor. Yeah, and I mean, you take like Augustus, too. I mean, I think most historians and classicists kind of um, make fun of him a little bit because of how obsessed he was with ensuring the succession of the family and how like everybody he picked died. Uh, yeah. So for like 20 years, he thinks he's got it nailed and he has to go back to it. And it was his great obsession in life. 
Um, and it, all things considered, it's a pretty noble uh, obsession to make sure that yeah. Rome did not go back to the chaotic civil wars that he emerged from. Right. <laughs> this is not this is not a bad thing to want for your empire. No. And can you imagine if someone had told him, you know, if he could have said to people in his day, well, you know, if 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 I don't do this properly, we could end up with some really, you know, corrupt monsters running things. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> He'd have been right about that. Yes, he would have been. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, let's move on to to revolutions. Um, I can only imagine your workload changed in in a huge way because at least with with Roman history we tend to only have one or two primary sources and although there's a lot of uh, secondary sources you can read there is a limit to how much we can sort of factually say suddenly jumping into the you know early modern history did you find you know oh man I've, I've got to read twice three times as much as I did just to keep up with this yeah that's you are nailing it right on the head <laughs> because um as you say, when you go through Roman history, at any given moment, there's probably, you know, three to five principal literary sources that you're going to be using, right? Like I'm, I'm writing this book right now on the beginning of the end of Roman Republic, and it's Plutarch, Polybius, Appian, Sallust. You know, you can, you can really, I mean, Livy, his, um, his work has dried up by that point. He, he goes away in 167 BC. Um, so there is like you can read everything we have um, on a particular topic or era when it comes to the Romans you get yeah into modern history we still have all the primary sources there is an insane load of secondary uh, books compared to what you can do with Roman history um, so when I landed in trying to do these revolutions yeah you're just like there's probably a hundred maybe even a thousand times more material that really needs mm -hmm. to be worked through here. So obviously I'm not able to work through that much. So I have to try to focus on getting the major mm, ground, like the sort of the groundbreaking works of secondary sources and then good examples of primary sources to try to stitch together a narrative, um, knowing full well that unlike the history of Rome, I'm not able to grapple with literally everything that was ever written um, on the topic. And one of the things that I tried to do and have tried to do um, is get representative examples following the historiography of the topic, as well as just the history of the topic. So when I was researching uh, the English Revolution and the English Civil Wars, I tried to get representative uh, you know, like Whig historians from the late 1900s, uh, or excuse me, the late 1800s, uh, and then like Marxist historians from the 30s and 40s, and then revisionist historians from the 60s and 70s to try to get all the different historical perspectives on the topic, as well as just uh, getting the material itself together to tell the story. And I figured if I sort of figured out a, a balance between those, like I could pump out a good a good history of the topic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, it kind of sounds like, you know, people will say, oh, you're a history podcaster. It, it actually sounds like it's quite a different job because, you know, when you read a really good, uh, you know, 
modern book about ancient history, it's often like reading a sort of detective story. You know, we know so little that the really good writer is kind of logicking together all these strands and saying, you know, well, maybe this is what really happened and so on. Whereas with revolutions, it sounds like, you know, you're like a guy in a huge library going, how do I summarize all of this? Yeah, it's, and as it's, you said, yeah, it's, it's coming out. at it from two completely different angles. Yeah, because one, you're you're filling in gaps. Um, and because we don't have any of the primary documents that like those ancient historians were working with. We don't have letter. We have some letters, but like there's not that whole volume of primary source material that you can actually work with. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, you know, the core, the letters of uh, the papers of George Washington are like, you know, 60 volumes or whatever. You can't, you can't <laughs> go through all of that. Yeah. But you can go through the letters of Pliny and then it's like, hey, look, that's all the letters we have from the <laughs> yeah. entire, you know, 50 year period. Yeah. I, I mean, right now, would you say one is more fun than the other or are they just different challenges? They are different challenges. Um, and right now I am working simultaneously um yeah on on you know in any given week um right now today i'm working on uh the haitian revolution right so half the time i'm i'm doing that and i'm completely in uh that and then now i'm back in uh i'm currently in the 140s bc i'm trying to get the roman republic uh up to its great triumph of conquering carthage and corinth to set the republic down it's a uh, inevitable death spiral and i love both of them like i'm not like oh i gotta go work on this one or i gotta go this one it's like every morning i wake up and it's like all right what am i gonna do today (laughs) okay i'm destroying saint domingue let's get to it and then tomorrow it'll be like okay i'm destroying the roman republic let's go do that do you do you need at least a bit of separation like okay i'll I'll do this today and that tomorrow or could you actually multitask and no i i do i do one one day and one the next okay um yeah (laughs) That's that's good. Yeah, I can't, I can't I <laughs> switch back and forth. That like when I wake up in the morning, it's like this is what I'm doing today. Yes. Well, I, I I'm always impressed to hear how much, how far you're reading ahead. But if you were reading multiple volumes at the same time, I would uh, start to question how how amazing your brain is. Well, and I'm, um, I, the, the problem is I'm about to have to start reading up uh, diligently on like Simone Bolivar and yeah. Uh, you know, the Spanish American wars of independence. Cause I got to start prepping for that. Cause that'll be coming here not too distant future. So that's going to get thrown into the mix. Wow. Uh, well, I, I really enjoyed the episode on George Washington that you recorded for the 10 American presidents podcast. Uh, would you, you know, obviously if time allowed you, would you like to be able to step out of the narrative format and do more standalone shows like that? Yeah, that was, that was really, really fun. Um, because obviously I'm a great lover of George Washington, um, and his life. And I do, I do really like straight biographical takes, which I, um, which I don't ever do because I'm always picking these sort of giant narratives to tell. So I wind up doing little biographical sketches along the way. Uh, but it would be nice to just focus on one particular guy, um, or, you know, maybe I could do something that was just a little bit smaller <laughs> someday. <Yeah. laughs> just, just something that was a couple of episodes instead of needing to be like a million episodes. But um, <laughs> mostly, mostly any project I start to work on winds up taking on a life of its own and ballooning way out of <laughs> way out of proportion. 
Yes. I mean, that's what happened with the history of Rome. You know, that was supposed to be, I don't know, 75 episodes and be done in 18 months. And like five years later, I was still working on it. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I would ever, uh, be able to contain myself, but it was, it was, it was really fun to do that. Um, yeah, yeah. that was very cool. Uh, I've reached a, a list of not exactly rapid fire questions, but, um, uh, kind of unconnected topics, um, half sent by listeners, half uh, from me. So let's just hit some of these. How did you become a fishmonger in the first place? Uh, I had, I was unemployed. I had run out of money. I had, I had saved up a bunch of money from a job that I had had that I did not want to have anymore. Um, <laughs> and I quit that job because I was like, I don't want this job anymore. Uh, but I had saved up some money, and I lived off that money for a while. And then uh, I was about to go broke, and I had a very good friend of mine who had gotten a job as a as a fishmonger. And he said, well, we just fired somebody at our place, so why don't you come work here? And I said, okay. And uh, that was the beginning of that. <laughs> and did you like fish? I do. I love fish. Uh, okay. I, I could eat seafood every – I could eat seafood three meals a day, like – for my whole life. So it was a great job. Um, and then I always, I, I kept the job all through the time that I was doing the history of Rome. I did something else for a little while, but I really loved, you know, fishmongering does not require like really any brain power whatsoever. It's a completely physical job, uh, with a little bit of customer interaction. Uh, so I could just be sitting there cutting fish or doing dishes or, you know, setting the case. And I'm thinking about, the show. I'm think I'm always. I was always thinking about the show, and I, you know, on breaks I'm reading about the show. So my brain was my that job never required my head, um, and because my head, all it wanted to be doing was thinking about the show. So I kind of intentionally avoided getting a real job because those places they actually want you to think about <laughs> what you're doing, <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. And I certainly didn't want a job that I had to like bring home with me that I had to worry about the job when yes. I wasn't actually at the job. You know, you walk away. You clock out at the end of a day. Um, you know, I'm not worried about how the fish are doing. I'm not worried about how we're going to make more money because I also didn't want to be a manager because I didn't want to worry about these things. On a on a side note, are you still able to read for pleasure or do you get to the end of the day and go, I don't want to read anymore? Oh, I have not read for pleasure. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, luckily, I've maneuvered myself to a place where. Uh, the things that I'm reading about are inherently interesting to me. Um, but I've, I don't really read books, um, off topic really ever from time to time I do. Um, and I'm usually feeling pretty guilty about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, speaking of books, uh, listener MH asks when the storm before the storm is published, would you narrate the audible.com version yourself? Yeah, that's, that's definitely the plan. Um, oh, that's great. Sure. We, I mean, we have, so we have, uh, retained the audio rights that we will try to, you know, we'll sell. Um, but I, neither myself nor my agent can think of a scenario where an, an audio book publisher <laughs> would get somebody else to read the book when yeah. I'm coming at, I'm approaching this from a position of an audio podcaster. I, we can't imagine that they would want that. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's very cool. Um, Right. Yeah. Personally relevant question. Uh, how do you answer when people ask what you do for a living? 
Well, I've decided that we've hit a point culturally um, that I can start saying I am a podcaster, which is something that I avoided because I didn't want to have to explain. I don't know. People would say, what do you do? And I would say, I'm yeah. a fishmonger, and I also do this thing on the side. Um, <laughs> but so when people ask, oh, I'm I'm a history writer, I I do this history thing on the internet. Enough people know what podcasting is now that I say, I'm a history podcaster. And they go, oh, wow. you can do that? And I go, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. I mean, the thing is, now you're going to publish your book. You know, you've, you can kind of take the easy way out as far as I'm concerned, because I still have to say to people, do you ever listen to podcasts on your phone? And then and, and then kind of explain, and they still look at me like, yeah, so when are you going to get a real job? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, so, how I'll be how I'll, I'm a published author. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I try to avoid saying I'm a historian. Uh, yes. Because I do think that there's a very, there is actually like a specific definition of what I would consider a historian, and these are like the academic guys that are truly waiting around in the primary source material and digging up new information and advancing like our knowledge base um, that people like you and me work from. So when people call me a historian. You know, sometimes it's easy to just let it slide, but, um, you know, that's not, I'm, a, I'm like a history writer. I'm a history storyteller. Um, I'm a, uh, rather than a, a true historian. Like if a true historian heard people like you and me saying, oh, yes, I'm a historian, they'd be like, no, you're not. Well, I've, you know, I'm what do you, totally you have, when was the last time you, you know, visited the dusty archives and were like literally trying to piece through manuscripts that you're holding in your hands? Like, oh, okay, don't do that. Yeah. Exactly. When when I can read Greek and Armenian and Aramaic, then you know maybe I'll I'll think about it. But yeah, no, I would make no such claim. Right. I've I've uh, not I've not braved the archives in Port-au-Prince to try to like uh, tell the story of the Haitian Revolution. No, and I mean you know I asked listeners for questions, and some of them did say you know ask Mike what he thinks about the economy in medieval times, but and I was just like, well, he'd need time to go and research that he's you know he, he hasn't been doing this for 50 years at, you know at university level where he can just reel off answers like that you know well neither so, can i and certainly you know, not about the medieval period I, that's a <laughs> like when when rome falls i just i skip right to like the renaissance and then yeah and then i pick the thread back up uh but speaking of medieval period was there any period of byzantine history you thought oh that would have been nice to cover um, well, I mean, going through to Belisarius um, yes. would have been was a possibility because I think that, that, you know, there's good reason to believe that that's kind of the end of the end. Uh, you know, Justinian. Wait, who, who was his emperor? I mean, this is the thing. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah, it was Justinian. Yeah, yeah. Justinian. And he was the last Latin speaking emperor. That's right. Yes. Okay. Just about. Yeah. So that's kind of that's another place that you can uh, put a bookend on like the Roman Empire before it transited because of the Roman Empire to me is like it's pagan, it's uh, Latin speaking, uh, it's sort of Western. And then the Byzantines are Greek speaking Orthodox Christians uh, with an Eastern focus. So there is like a transition in there. Um, but yeah, the, the Belisarius Justinian range uh, is about as, you know, as far as I would have gone. And then after that, like I say, I'm just, I'm ready to skip ahead to like Machiavelli. <laughs> uh, listener MT says if you had to have a Roman emperor around for dinner who would it be and why well I, w I would have to want to sit down with Aurelian 
um, yes. to just have him walk me through everything. You know, yes. I mean, like sit down for dinner with him, like right before he, he gets assassinated and be like, just tell me everything you've done over the past five years, because I want to know it all. Because he's a guy who we know about. We know what he did. But like we were saying earlier, there's usually four or five sources um, that you can read literary sources from uh, Greek or Latin texts that will tell us about stuff. You know, that crisis of the third century was so chaotic that you don't even have that. Um you know, uh, you don't yeah. get anything that good again until like Ammianus Marcellinus, who's, um, you know, a good hundred years later. So, ta- I mean, Aurelian's career is really super pieced together from coins and inscriptions and fleeting references from here and uh, here and there. Um, so he I would want to just sit down, you know, with a with a dictaphone. Wait, a dictaphone? <laughs> am I? God, like, did I just tell us how <laughs> I am? <laughs> With a with a digital recording with my phone, I'll just hit record on my phone. Yes. Of course, that's what I would do. I would have, <laughs> um, uh, and just get him uh, just get him to give me an oral history of his life. Uh, that's what I would want. Absolutely, uh, that's a very good answer. Um, listener MF asks: Should these men be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Pete Rose, Roger Clemens. Um, I'm on the merits. All three of those guys are Hall of Famers. Uh, I would vote for Roger Clemens, no problem. Uh, I do not care about Pete Rose at all. Um, he can <laughs> sit on it as far as I care. Um, he's done himself no favors. He's had a million opportunities to try to walk himself back into the Hall of Fame, and he just keeps blowing it, so I don't really care. Um, and then he bro- Rose's thing is that he broke the only rule that's posted in every clubhouse in every stadium in baseball, right? So don't gamble. Um, and that mm. takes you right back to shoeless Joe Jackson. He was involved in that gambling, you know, the scandal. So it's hard to want to let either of those guys in. I mean, shoeless Joe Jackson's one of the greatest hitters of all time. So on the merits, yes. But, uh, you know, given his role in the Black Sox scandal, um, if he hasn't gotten in now, I'm kind of okay with that. And it's also, it's fine for guys like Rose and, uh, Shoeless Joe to not be in because we can always talk about them as the guys who aren't in the Hall of Fame. I think if you put them in, we maybe even stop talking about them as much uh, as we otherwise would have. So it's actually a place for them to be. Yeah. Uh, well, from a very American question to a very English one, I heard that you're a Red Dwarf fan. Uh, do you have a favorite character or moment from the show? Yes, I am. I am an enormous Red Dwarf fan. Um, I've probably seen. The first six series, I probably watched every one of those episodes, God, like twenty or thirty times. Uh, <laughs> I'm a crazy fan, so I actually, I actually did. I gave this is probably the question I gave the most thought to. That's how big of a Red Dwarf fan I am, because I want to get this right. And I finally settled on uh, the beginning of the episode Meltdown, which is a great episode on its own. That's where they wind up on that planet. Uh, with the wax droids who are going to war with yes. each other, right? Do all the history characters like you know, like yes. Nazis yeah, and Hitler versus like Hitler and Genghis Khan. It's so great. Um, but the beginning of that episode is Rimmer describing a game of Risk that he had played <laughs> from his diary, and or yeah, so Rimmer's describing it, and Lister's like, Rimmer, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, wait, wait, but you you don't know what happened next. And he's like, fine, what happened next? 
I rolled a two and a three. And then he rolled a four <laughs> and a five. <gasps> Disaster, right? Like, it's one of the best written scenes in the entire show. Like, whoever whoever actually sat down and wrote the dialogue for that scene, it's just, it's brilliant. It's so perfect. Um, so I think that's that's where I finally landed. Close second is the look on Kat's face when he has to go to the bathroom in the episode where they go to the reverse time world. Um, yeah, that's like, that's perfect right there. Oh, brilliant. Wow. And there, there you go. I had no idea we had that in common. Uh, that's excellent. That's two very good choices. Uh, if you enjoy the humor on, on the history of Rome and you've never heard of red dwarf, you could, you could check it out. There's a, there's a chance you might like it. Oh yeah. It's so it misses the history of Rome. Her favorite scene is, um, when cat it's an early episode when cat is walking through the hallways and he's got that little like perfume spray and he's like yes. this is man this is man <laughs> this is man <laughs> this is man over here and then he stops yeah. and like checks himself out in the mirror he's like how am i looking i'm looking good <laughs> this is man so uh oh, there you go well uh what about uh comic books uh again i think i heard you were a comic book fan do you have a favorite uh title or character yeah i mean from the big the big guys i'm a batman spider-man guy when it comes to superheroes um but truly my favorite comic book and the one that i have actually like a pretty decent um collection of is usagi yojimbo by stan sakai um who became well known because there was a little side connection to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's the samurai rabbit. Um, but Usagi Yojimbo is so beautifully written and so well researched as uh, as a history comic, right? Stan Sakai does tons and tons of um, of history mm. to tell these really amazing stories. Uh, you, you know, using anthropomorphic, you know, it's all like cats and and bunny rabbits. Um, but it's this, this is this nonstop samurai epic where he'll have an entire he had an entire issue in the early days where um, uh, Usagi goes to this giant kite flying competition. That's where the story takes place. But the whole thing is really just an excuse for him to talk about how uh, the old Japanese used to construct these giant kites. Um, <laughs> so it's like you're like, wow, I thought I was reading about, you know, Usagi's adventure. And really, I'm sitting here now. I know how to put together um, an enormous kite using like bamboo and like paper. Like, here's how you lay out the paper. Like, it's, oh, it's so good. Wow. And beautifully Very and cool. beautifully drawn. It's some of the best art. Um, it's so simple. Um, like somebody said about Stan Sakai that he's never used um, an unnecessary line in his life. Everything is so mm. fluid and simple. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Uh, well, that brings me to the last question, which uh, works less well now that you've had him around for dinner. But uh, listener GR said, what's it like to be the reincarnation of Aurelian? <laughs> I, am not, I am not the reincarnation of Aurelian. Um, well, we don't know. We don't well, know enough about him to rule that out. I'm, I'm, I'm probably like the reincarnation of like Aurelian's secretary. <laughs> it's like, so I'm super impressed with this guy. Um, but I am not, I'm not a conqueror. I mean, God, I mean, the guy was like hands, old sword in hand, you know, yeah. hand on hill. Um, that's not your mic in hand. Yeah. That's, oh, that's yeah. not exactly my style though. I'm not, I'm not a <laughs> conqueror. Um, I am an admirer of his and what he did, but, um, 
But who knows? Maybe I am actually the reincarnation of Aurelian, and I'm just <laughs> he was in the afterlife, uh, you know, down in the underworld, and was completely pissed that he was being forgotten about. Uh, yes, sent himself back up. It. The express intention of um of getting his name back out there, which is of course now I consider my life's work will be to yeah. instantly and nonstop promote Aurelian as one of the greatest emperors of all time. Exactly. Uh, well, there you go. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I think, again, I speak for everyone when I say I hope the book is a huge success, but not so much of a one that it stops you from podcasting. No, I doubt that will will ever happen. <laughs> I'll, I'll, so always, I'll always be putting out a show. And congratulations on uh, on your own continued success. Um, I'm glad that when you picked it up, you haven't set it down yet. I think that's I think that's awesome. And uh, you know, I I know as much as anybody how hard it is to keep putting shows out. You know, constantly. Um, so congratulations, good work. Thank you, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, thanks to those of you on Facebook who sent in questions. As you know, I remain a huge fan of the History of Rome podcast, and I'm so glad that Mike is still recording and plans to continue doing so. I, of course, wanted to know more about the Romans, and so it's a great honor to be able to continue the audio narrative on into the Byzantine era. I'm very grateful to all of you, because thanks to your support, The podcast has now become my primary source of work, and by the end of 2016, it will be my only job. Uh, My father, who's an actor, is retiring, and so my work with him will slowly disappear, which will leave me more time to research, write, and record, which is obviously great news, but I go on needing your support. If you've ever donated to the show or bought one of the sale episodes or written a review on iTunes, then a sincere thank you from me and from everyone else, I hope. This is a crowdfunded project. If you've contributed anything, then you deserve credit for getting us to episode 100. If you haven't had the chance to give before, please consider doing so now. Even a small amount will help keep me chained to a desk for another seven centuries. (laughs) Thanks again, and I'll be back soon with one of the most dramatic civil wars in Byzantine history. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 